Uh, Today we start our Unstuck series. Uh, We're going to be looking into the areas of our life where we can get stuck, and we're going to learn how to release God's power in our life so we can get unstuck. Uh, The series has two aspects to it that I'm going to try and hold in in tension, hold in balance. And the first aspect is the areas in which we get stuck. It's the struggle that we all face with our flesh, with our self, with our sin. And the other aspect is the way that we get unstuck. Uh, God offers us a way out of our dilemma. God offers us the fruit of the Spirit. And part of the tension comes from a legitimate need to recognize our sinfulness. Uh, We've got to become uncomfortable with our sin. Not complacent, but uncomfortable with our sin. But we also don't need to wallow in our sin for nine weeks of a sermon series. So I'm going to try real hard not to continually drag us down every week. But it's imperative, especially as we start, that we not ignore, we don't discount, we don't minimize the dilemma. Because we have a tendency to to reduce, to rationalize our sin. We can see sin clearly in other people, but it's a little harder to see it in ourselves. And that's how we get stuck. And so we have to acknowledge the truth of our sinful nature. But we've also got to acknowledge the truth that God offers us a way to overcome our sinful nature. God offers us the power to become unstuck. Now, Paul lays out this tension for us in Galatians chapter 5. This is going to be the theme passage for this series. And let's uh, just look at these verses together. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul says that the Spirit and the flesh are in constant conflict with one another. You know, it's a battle. The flesh wants to satisfy the desires of the flesh. And and the Spirit, you know, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us and, and wanting to lead us to righteousness. And so there's this constant tension. There's a battle every day in every way. Which way am I going? Which way am I going to choose? Acts of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit? Acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and if you haven't seen yourself on the list yet, he says, and the like. (laughs) That's the dilemma. That's where we get stuck. And if you think you're not stuck in one of these, don't struggle with this, well then... You know, we, we always see it more clearly in somebody else. So ask somebody else if they see it in you. Ask a friend, you know. Or better yet, ask an enemy because, man, they'll point them out. Yeah, you got one, you got eight, you got 12, you got, you know, get really struggling here. So what's the solution? How do we get unstuck? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says if we walk in the spirit to walk means to live continually recognizing the spirit's presence recognizing the spirit's power in our life if we walk in the spirit we won't gratify the desires the lusts of the flesh the holy spirit serves as a guide and as believers we're called to yield to his guidance yield to his direction we don't live according to our flesh according to our lusts according to ourself we live according to the spirit why? Because the stakes are high. 
The stakes are high. Pursuing the lust of the flesh is devastating. And, and the fruit of the Spirit is eternal benefit. So it matters which one we choose. Now, when it comes to the flesh, when it comes to the self, the truth is it's not about self-preservation. You hear that term a lot about self-preservation. That's not how the flesh operates. It's really about self-destruction. Ever since Adam and Eve, the flesh, the self, has been about the pursuit of death. Genesis 3, God issued this warning to Adam. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not, and hear that, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will, say it with me, certainly die. And it's not that the fruit was poison, and as soon as they ate it, they croaked. It's that they made a a moral choice. They disobeyed God, and from that moment on, they were on the path to the destruction of their self. They're set on on a a path of of self-destruction to death. Not just their destruction. The result was the destruction of every single person who came after them. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, the destiny of the flesh is death. Paul says that in Romans 5. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And we see this propensity toward death, this, this tendency toward self-destruction in every person at every age. From, from the adamant self-sufficiency of a child. they got a sharp pair of scissors. No, Mom, I want to do this myself. To the reckless attitude of youth who, who act like they're invincible and indestructible. They drive like maniacs. They jump off of high stuff. We see the tendency toward self-destruction in, in the relentless pursuit of addiction and, and sexual immorality. The, the attempt to satisfy desires, satisfy appetites that can't be satisfied. And it destroys us. We see it in the slow destruction of gluttony. We, we carry around, we try to satisfy the flesh with food, and we carry around twice the body weight that the body is designed for, and it destroys our heart, and it destroys our joints, and it destroys our blood vessels. We see it in the acidic burn of bitterness and envy that just eats us alive from the inside out. We see it in the dark destruction of sadness, despair, and depression, the frustration with ourselves and our lot in life. Left to the self we wind up in a headlong pursuit in the destruction of our own flesh. We pursue death under the beguilement of sin. And the destruction of the flesh is something, again, we see more readily in other people than we see it in ourselves. In fact, we compare ourselves to other people. Oh, I'm not that bad. Like one leper comparing themselves to another. You know, we're both still dying from leprosy. The comparison is only a matter of degree, not situation. We convince ourselves. We try to convince other people. I can stop anytime I want to. Well, then stop. Because you're destroying yourself by pursuing the flesh. If I had a nickel for every time somebody told me they could stop anytime they wanted to, I would have a lot of nickels. And you may think you're doing fine. I'm doing better than most. But this laundry list in Galatians shows us loud and clear where we're headed if we follow our flesh. And the sooner we recognize that reality, the less damage we'll do to ourselves and the less damage we'll do to others. 
Because the acts of the flesh not only destroy us, they also destroy those around us. These sins are infectious, they're contagious, their fallout lasts for generations. Paul invites us to, to contrast the acts of the flesh with their death and destruction with the fruit of the Spirit, which brings life, eternal life. And just as the acts of flesh are infectious and contagious and affect those around us, the fruit of the Spirit do as well. They're communal. They, they are born in fellowship. Uh, they, they are lived out in relationship with one another. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruit that are manifested through interaction with other people. If you want to bear the fruit of the Spirit, you've got to get in the orchard. And that's why this, this, this fall we have uh, 69 small groups with about 623 people in those small groups. From, ranging from kids through teens all the way into adults. Because we're serious about getting you plugged into fellowship so that the fruit of the Spirit can be borne out in your life. This week, we're focusing on the fruit of love. Love. We use that word love in English. We just, we just throw that word around a lot. We love our job. We love our kids. We love to fish. We love pizza. You know, we take the word love and we stick it in great big letters on the seat of our sweatpants. <laughs> I don't have a pair. Just want to remove any disturbing images that might haunt you through the rest of the sermon. Okay? I don't have a pair, but I go to Walmart. And um, <laughs> love, 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 love. Okay? The Greek language actually has uh, four, maybe five different words uh, for the word love. They're more specific in how they use that word and throw it around. There's storge, philia, eros, and agape. And storge is used in the Greek to identify affection like the affection that a parent has for a child and a child has for a parent. I mean, wouldn't you agree? That's a unique love relationship between a parent and a child. Philia is used to describe someone that you like or something that you like. It's a friendship kind of a thing. Uh, the, the term we, we use it in English, we'll talk about brotherly love. Philadelphia, it's actually two Greek words. Delphos is city, and philia means uh, brotherly love. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, unless you've ever actually been there. Um, <laughs> the Greek word eros means lust, and it's used to describe physical, sensual, sexual activity. We get the English word erotic from the Greek word. And it's interesting, eros is never used in the Bible. Uh, the Greek word that's used the most often in the Bible is the word agape. And I know when you look at it, in the English it looks like agape, which means to stand with your mouth open amazed. And, and I think it's kind of cool because that's the response when you really understand God's love for you. I mean, you're just... Oh, that's the way God loves me? That's the love he wants to pour into my life? That's the love he wants me to have for other people? I mean, it's a staggering how God wants us to love one another. It's the highest form of love. It's a deep, compassionate, forgiving kind of love. That's how God wants to love us. That's how God wants us to love him. That's how God wants us to love one another. There's a big difference between eros and agape, between lust and love. 
And I'm afraid that in our culture, we have settled for lust. And we've given up on the pursuit of agape. And when you pursue lust in a relationship, you wind up feeling and acting cheap. Ladies, if you're going to catch and keep a man through lust, you're on a self-defeating course. A pursuit for physical and sexual attraction based on lust works against the very laws of nature and aging. You can never do enough to satisfy lust. And pursuing lust leads to a relationship that's based on fear. You'll constantly be afraid you're not measuring up. You'll constantly be afraid of losing him to someone younger, someone sexier, someone prettier. You'll feel cheap if you base the relationship on lust. You'll feel cherished if it's based on love. One of the the most uh, life-changing things I heard as a young husband was I heard a pastor say one time, husbands, don't try to make your wife more sensual. Try to make her more spiritual. And honestly, it changed my relationship in my marriage and my outlook on marriage and love, and it revolutionized my life. And his point was, as the husband, you're the spiritual head of the family, and your goal is to raise the spiritual, nurture that relationship spiritually, not sensually. Cherish her. Don't cheapen her. How can you tell if your relationship's based on love or lust? We just look at the characteristics. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient and kind, not envious, boastful, or proud, honors others, not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, rejoices with the truth, protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Does that describe your relationship? Lust, on the other hand, lust is impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud, dishonors others, self-seeking, easily angered, keeps score, delights in evil, tells lies, makes you vulnerable, is untrustworthy, offers false hope. I'll marry you one day, babe falters and fails. You know, which one describes your relationship? And if you find yourself trapped in a relationship driven by lust, I want to invite you today to try something far, far better. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. First thing you need to know about the fruit of the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit are a gift from God. That the list of the fruit of the Spirit is a list of gifts that God wants to give you. This is not a list of expectations that God wants you to muster up out of yourself, uh, out of your own power and strength. Oh man, I got to love more. I got to be more joyful, have more peace, be more patient. I got to be kinder, gooder, more faithful. I got to act like a gentleman, have more self control. This, is, this list, list isn't designed to put pressure on you to enhance your performance before God and other people. This is a list of gifts that God wants to pour into your life. God wants to give you these fruit as a replacement for the flesh. God wants to give you life as a replacement for self-destruction and death. And Paul gives this laundry list of the acts of the flesh, and many of them we see are just the result of a lack of love, agape love. They're actually the fruit of lust and self-serving rather than the fruit of love. 
They're the absence of love in a person's life. They're what, a, what life would look like if we got stuck in the flesh. And, and before we get all puffed up and, and seated on our high horse and start pointing fingers at all the wickedly immoral people around us, we need to recognize we all struggle in all of these areas. It's not a matter of degrees of sin. It's a matter of the presence of sin. And we're all contaminated. We're all infected with these. But God's love is different. God's love is different than our affection, than our like, than our lust. So how does the Bible describe God's love? On your notes. First, God's love is a pursuing love. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We may be able to understand a God who would forgive sinners who came to him begging for mercy. But a God who tenderly searches out sinners, actively goes out in pursuit of them while they're running away from him, and then joyfully forgives them. I mean, that God must possess an extraordinary love. Lust doesn't pursue. Lust chases. Lust chases in order to catch and consume and satisfy itself. Lust isn't concerned about the other person as much as it's concerned about itself. But God's love, agape love, that kind of love that God wants to release in your life, it's a love that pursues, a love that seeks. It doesn't seek to catch and consume. It seeks to save. To save. That's the kind of love that prompted Jesus Christ to come to earth to search for lost people and save them. It's the kind of extraordinary love that God has for you. If you feel far from God, you need to realize God is pursuing you. God wants to give you the kind of love that causes you to pursue Him. To pursue others. Not to catch, capture, or consume, but but to care for them with compassion and to extend to them forgiveness and healing. God wants to give you the kind of love that you can live out before people and for people. All the attributes of the characters of God's love. It's a patient, kind love that doesn't envy or boast. It's not proud. A love that honors others. A love that's not easily angered. Doesn't keep score. Doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. A love that protects, trusts hopes, perseveres. God is pursuing you with that kind of love. He's offering you that kind of love as a gift. And the question is, are you going to receive it? Or are you going to settle for lust? Second, God's love is beyond measure. Romans 8, 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote those words to the church in Rome, and they were written to a church that would soon undergo a terrible persecution. In just a few years, Nero would unleash his wrath on the church in Rome. They would face horrible persecution, suffering, imprisonment, death, martyrdom in the Colosseum. Horrific things would happen to the church. And I just imagine the church in Rome clinging desperately to this verse in the, in the, in the face of these painful realities, just, just clinging to the fact that, that no matter what happens to us, no matter where we are, no matter what we endure, nothing's going to separate us from God's love. Our suffering 
should not drive us away from God. It should help us identify with Christ who suffered for us, and, and we should allow his love to reach us and heal us and bear the fruit of his love in us because God's love is beyond measure. From that same passage, we, we see that God's love is eternal. This verse contains one of the most comforting promises in all Scripture. Believers have always had to face hardships, persecution, illness, imprisonment, death. And those negative life occurrences could cause them to, to feel that they have been abandoned by Christ. But Paul exclaims, it's impossible to be separated from the love of Christ. His death proves that his love is eternal for us. Nothing can stop Christ's constant presence with us. And God tells us how much he loves us so we can feel totally secure in him no matter what happens. God's love is eternal. It's not going to fade or run out on us. You know, human love runs out. Human love runs dry. That's why we so desperately need God's agape love. We need God to love us with it so that we can love others with it. If you feel your love for someone waning and, and wearing thin, you're not loving them with God's love. You're trying to love them out of your own love, out of your flesh, out of yourself. And you need to give up on that kind of love because it's just not going to be enough. You need to release the power of God's love in your life. You need to let the fruit of the spirit of love flow through you. How do we do that? That leads to the next point. God's love is sacrificial. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The entire gospel comes to focus in this one verse. God's love is not static or self-centered. God's love reaches out. It draws others in. It's sacrificial. In the gospel, God sets the pattern for true love, the basis for all true love. Love relationships. When you love someone dearly, you're willing to pay dearly for that person. And God paid dearly for you. God paid the highest price he could pay for you. God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son. Now, as a parent, I would rather give up my life for someone than give up the life of my child. Parents, do you agree with that? You know, I would rather lay down my life and lay down theirs. Take me, but spare my child. God did just the opposite. God paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. God gave his son for you. Because God loves you with a sacrificial love. And Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He laid down his life for my life. He died in my place. And now he offers us the new, eternal, abundant life that he bought for us. Christ's love, it's sacrificial and beneficial. He, he sacrificed for our benefit. And he calls us to do the same. When we share the gospel, uh, our love must be like Jesus. We, we, we must be willing to give up our own comfort, give up our own security, so that others might join us in receiving God's love. On your notes, God's love is inexhaustible. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Forty-three times in the Bible, the phrase, his love endures forever. Twenty-six out of forty-three are in Psalm 136. 
Psalm 136 was written as kind of a call and response psalm. The leader would make a a statement about the glory and greatness of God, and the congregation would respond back, his love endures forever. And then the leader would make another great, glorious statement about God, and the whole place would respond back, his love endures forever. Another great statement about the glory and, and greatness of God, and his love endures forever. And that repetition would just drive home the point that his love endures forever. We never have to worry that the God of love, the, the love of God will run out. Because God's love, it flows out of God himself. The Bible says God is love. It doesn't say God loves. It doesn't say God has love or God desires to be loved. It says God is love. God's love is inexhaustible. So what do we remember when God's love seems distant? We need to remember his love endures forever. We need to remember that his love is sacrificial. We need to remember that his love is eternal. His love is beyond measure. God's love is pursuing you. What's your personal response to God's love? What's really remarkable about this is that given God's great love for us, given that God sent his son, sacrificed his son as an act of love for us, Yet our greatest tendency is to stray away from the love of God. If anything demonstrates the self-destructive nature of the flesh, it's the simple fact that left to ourselves, we choose to stray from God. The hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And when you wander, how does God bring you back? God doesn't drive you back with a whip. God woos you back with his love. God wins you with his love. And when you turn to him, he forgives you and cleanses you and gives you the righteousness of Christ. He gives you the fruit of the Spirit. He replaces your self-destructive tendency of the flesh. He replaces it with the fruit of the Spirit. So the big question is, is what, what, what do I do? What specific action are you going to take to get unstuck in your life? How how can you release God's power of love in your life? How How do you defeat the lure of lust? How can your love become all that God wants it to be? Well, Paul ends this section with this admonition, verses 24 and 25. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we're going to control and contain the flesh, we've got to make a decision. We've got to crucify, mortify, die to the flesh. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And Paul uses the words walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit intentionally. I mean, think about this. When you walk, how do you walk? When you keep in step, how do you keep in step? And the answer is, you do it one step at a time. One step at a time. One moment, one decision, one action at a time. And when you do that with the Spirit, you move in the same direction as the Spirit, and you move at the same pace as the Spirit. And Paul promises that if we make that decision, if we crucify the flesh, I'm not living like this anymore. I'm going to walk with the Spirit. I'm going to listen. 
I'm going to make choices moment by moment, day by day, one action, one word, one thought at a time. And Paul promises if we do that, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But instead, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Maybe you're here today and and, and you've never responded to God's sacrificial love for you. You've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive you of your sin and, and give you that new, eternal, abundant life that he offers those who trust in him. This is your moment. God has been pursuing you. God brought you here. You're not here by accident. God brought you here so today you could hear that if you respond to his love, God will save you. He came to seek and to save you. And this is your moment. Would you just say, God, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Make me brand new. Help me to walk in the Spirit so I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And maybe you're here and you've been a believer for years, but there's areas where you're just stuck. You're just stuck in this self-destructive pattern of the flesh. And this is your moment. This is your day. You're not here by accident either. God brought you here so he could say, look, it's time. It's time to crucify that flesh. It's time to die to that old behavior. It's time to release the power of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And God invites you from this moment on to walk in the Spirit, to keep pace with the Spirit, to allow God's power to move into you and give you the ability to make right choices one moment, one decision, one step at a time. God, we thank you. We thank you for the power that you offer to us. We thank you for the gifts that you give to us. And today, we receive them. Help us to walk in the Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.